All right, let's jump right into the text this morning. This will be Exodus chapter 18. We'll begin in verse 1. Jethro. Jethro, the priest of Midian, who was also Moses' father-in-law, heard of all that God had done for Moses and for Israel, his people, how Yahweh the Lord had brought Israel out of Egypt. Now, Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, had taken Zipporah, this is Jethro's daughter, this is Moses' wife, he took her after Moses had sent her home along with her two sons. So Zipporah, sometime after Exodus 4, moves back in with her father and mother and their family, and she brings along two sons. One is Gershom, who we met in Exodus chapter 4, where they have that strange encounter with the immediate circumcision in the dark, and it it works somehow. There's another son that comes along with uh, Gershom, whose name is Eleazar. We're going to meet him in just a minute. So there's two sons of Moses, his wife, and they come with Jethro back to visit Moses. That's verse 3. The name of the one was Gershom, for Moses had said, I have been a sojourner in a foreign land when he lived in Midian. And the name of the other was Eleazar, for Moses had said, the God of my father was my help. He delivered me. He delivered me from the sword of Pharaoh. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, came with Moses' sons, came with Moses' wife to Moses in the wilderness where he was encamped at the mountain of God. You may remember the last couple of weeks, I've tried to highlight for you that once you are on the Sinai Peninsula, you are basically in the foothills of Mount Sinai. It is the tallest and most prominent peak, and so To be camped in that area is to be camped at the base of the mountain. If you're trying to make sense of the geography, the people are still at Rephidim. And when he sent word to Moses, Jethro sent a messenger ahead. He said this, he said, I, your father-in-law Jethro, am coming to you with your wife and her two sons with her. I think it's kind of funny that Jethro has to remind Moses who he is. He's like, yeah, I'm that Jethro. It's been a while since they've seen each other, so I guess some things have changed. So they come to where Moses is, they come where he's camped out, and Moses went out to meet him because they do have a good relationship. He met his father-in-law, he bowed down, and he kissed him, he honored him. And they asked each other of their welfare. They went into the tent. This is what we do, right? When people come to visit us, we meet them in the driveway. We go, how was the drive? How are you? Are you okay? And you bring them in the house, you sit down, you catch up. That's all that's happening here. And Moses told his father-in-law all that the Lord had done to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians for Israel's sake. This includes the plagues, this is the Red Sea, this is all of the drama that Jethro has missed since Moses left Jethro's house in Midian to go back to Egypt at God's call. All the hardship that he had come, excuse me, that had come upon them in the way, meaning the three weeks that we've looked at, the water that was too bitter to drink, the hunger in the wilderness, the thirst at Meribah and Massah last week, and of how the Lord had delivered them. That's where they end their conversation. And Jethro rejoiced. He rejoiced for all the good that the Lord had done to Israel in that God had delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians. Jethro is one of the only people, when Moses leaves Midian, who actually knows what's going to happen to Moses. All the Egyptians, they don't know. All of the Israelites, they don't know. Moses has to get his brother Aaron together around the end of chapter 4, beginning of chapter 5, and convince the elders of Israel that God still cares about them. But Jethro's been there. As soon as Moses came down from the rock of Horeb where he met God at the burning bush, Jethro would have been one of the very first people to hear this story. He was there to help probably console and counsel Moses, who I would guess is pretty rattled at an inanimate object speaking to him in God's name. Jethro's been a support for Moses. He was willing to receive Zipporah, Moses' wife, back home. And we don't know why that happens. Maybe Moses and Zipporah were not getting along. Maybe the stress of leading God's people or the danger that Moses felt was maybe looming over him as the primary spokesperson against the Pharaoh. Maybe those were enough for him to send her away and just say, look, I don't know how this is going to go, but God called me, not us, and so I'm not going to put that pressure and weight on you. I'm going to deal with this on my own. 
What I want to point out to you is, is the nature of sort of the lack of defining words in the verses that we've read. And, and you're probably thinking, what are you ta- even talking about here? So in every other story that we've read so far in Exodus, there's been sort of like a temporal indicator. I know, you don't even care what those words mean. I'm going to tell you anyway. The books of the Bible are typically laid out in a way where they tell you what came before and what came after. They give you a reference point. That's true for the chapters. That's often true even for whole paragraphs. If you read one of the Gospels, any one of the four, especially the Gospel of Mark, Mark is always saying immediately or right after this, Jesus went there or did this thing. In Exodus chapter 18, we get no time reference at all. It doesn't say immediately after or following these things or next Jethro came and visited Moses. It just says he did it at some point. Now, here's why that matters. In this chapter, in two places, Jethro is going to encourage Moses about the way that Moses is laying out the law for God's people. Why does that matter? Because in chapter 18, they don't have the law yet. God hasn't given it to them. So it's possible that even though chronologically the events of chapter 18 fall in between the encampment of Rephidim and the arrival at the base of Mount Sinai in chapter 19, if we can pull this chapter out, it probably happens at the very end of all of the other chronological events in this book. So that's important because we're going to hear in just a minute that Moses is not doing so well. And if we read it in context, we're going to think, really, it's only been a few months and he's already beginning to crumble under the pressure. Now, he's under a lot of pressure, so I'm not trying to belittle him at all. But it makes a little more sense when you pull it out and realize, okay, he's under a lot of pressure because it's been several years and because he's doing this alone and he won't delegate. I'm getting ahead of myself just a little bit. What I want you to understand is instead of maybe trying to figure out what Jethro's advice, because Jethro's going to speak to Moses in just a minute, instead of trying to figure out what that advice has to do with just Moses' circumstances, I think you and I have the freedom today to just evaluate the basic truth of those claims. So when we hear Jethro speak in a minute, don't just hear him speak to Moses about Moses' circumstances. Allow yourself to maybe pull out of this context what Jethro is saying, what matters, what's true about him, and I think that's where we're going to find our application. I think if the Bible needed us to know the order that these things happened, it would make it clear. But instead, what the Bible goes out of its way to emphasize is the character of Jethro, the recommendations that he makes to Moses, and Moses' response. That'll be essentially the arc that we will cover as we follow through this chapter. So Jethro first demonstrates that he's authentically aligned with Yahweh. In the very first verse of this chapter, we find out that he's the priest of Midian. Midian is not a person, it's a region. So it might be easy to read that and go, I guess Midian's like another... Egyptian god or an idol of some kind, and Jethro is the guy who helps everybody worship that guy. That's not the case. Going back to chapter 3 of Exodus, we find out that somehow Jethro is sort of a remnant of the early stirrings of Judaism, of following God in the Old Testament. It's possible that his ancestors bumped up against the people of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob because Jethro seems to have a very kind of archaic and old school perspective on God, but it's still right, it's still true, it's just very basic and undeveloped. And so for all these years that Moses has been in Egypt, all the years that Moses lived with Jethro, Jethro has a very basic, very rudimentary thing that he does where he leads other people to worship God. He doesn't have laws. He doesn't have statutes. He can't teach them how to live their lives exactly right, but he knows how to perform a sacrifice, and he knows how to worship God the right way. Now, that's important to you and I because in a minute, Jethro is going to leverage his authority. He's going to leverage his character, and he's going to try to do something that's kind of impossible. At least it's ill-advised. He's going to give God's prophet advice. It's not really a thing that you do unless you are also God's prophet. If God is speaking directly to a person and you get in the mix and go, hey, actually, I think this might be what's going on, that's a recipe for disaster. Maybe you didn't know that and I can avoid some pain in your future. If God is speaking to another person and you get wrapped up in that, mixed up in that, and start pushing them the other direction, at least based on the evidence in the Bible, it's unlikely that things things will necessarily go terribly well for you. 
So let's keep reading, and what I want you to notice first is what Jethro's going to do, and then in a minute we're going to talk about how what he does leads him to have the authority to say what it is that he says to Moses. We'll pick it up in verse 10. So Jethro's just heard about the good things that God has done. Here's his response. Jethro said, Blessed be Yahweh, who has delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of Pharaoh, and who has delivered the people from under the hand of the Egyptians. And then here comes a revelation for Jethro. This is new for him. He says, now I know that Yahweh is greater than all gods, because in this affair they dealt arrogantly with the people. In other words, only Yahweh has shown himself capable, willing, involved, alive, real. The other gods were given opportunities. Every one of the plagues is not just God knocking down an Egyptian god or goddess. He's giving them a fair playing field. He's demonstrating to them, if you were ever going to show up, it would be in the midst of these specific circumstances that I have handcrafted to topple you. And they never do. And so Jethro says, having heard all this, having heard these ten plagues, being very familiar with the gods of Egypt, since I live in Midian, which is right next door to Egypt, I know now this God that I've been worshiping sort of in a rudimentary, basic fashion is actually alive. He's not just a force or a power. He's not just some sort of old ancestral regional deity. He is the living God based on your testimony, Moses. And then here's what he does. Verse 12. And Jethro, who is Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering, and he brought sacrifices to God. And Aaron, who is Moses' brother, came and brought all of the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law before God. Jethro, having just arrived in the camp of Israel, responds to God's love, mercy, forgiveness, and favor with worship. That's his knee-jerk reaction. That's the right and appropriate way to spend his first couple of hours coming out of this tent and catching up with Moses. Jethro's worship is authoritative in a way. We know this because it's magnetic. He doesn't worship alone. He's not a weird tribal guy who came into camp sort of disheveled and had to set up an altar out on the edge of town and do his own thing. He begins to make sacrifices to God and host a worship service, and the most important people come. Aaron goes and gathers the elders. He can tell tell that what Jethro is doing is authoritative. It's right. It's a right response to what God has done. And so they gather together with Jethro as the priest presiding over them. Jethro's worship leads God's people, even though Jethro himself is, catch this, not an Israelite. He's a Gentile. He is a man who lives outside of the tribal camp of Israel. He's not one of their people. If we were to go back to chapters 12 and 13, when God explains how people who are outside can be drawn inside, we don't have any evidence of Jethro having done those things yet. He has not submitted to circumcision. His own grandson, Gershom, was uncircumcised at the time that Moses and his family left Midian. That's why God came to them in chapter 4 and they had that freaky encounter. So, Probably Jethro is not necessarily submitting to every objective that God has laid out, yet in his heart what he wants to do is not just be a part of God's cool movement in Israel, but he wants to honor the God who he knows personally. And that's way more important. In fact, that grants him access to God in a way that no amount of posturing or rule-keeping or box-checking ever would. And that's not even a major point that I want to make today. That's free for you. But if you can pick up something from that on your own life, that's also true for you and I. No amount of posturing, rule-keeping, or box-keeping will ever do the work of a heart that wants to honor God and be close to him. As Jethro worships and honors God for all of the things that he has done, and you better believe Moses gave him the gritty details, every moment of the people wanting to stone Moses, kill him, kick him out, get rid of him, Jethro is seeing not only the large-scale deliverance of God over the nation, but he's worshiping because his son-in-law has been preserved as well. In a minute, Jethro is going to speak. 
And when he does, he's going to show a deep and abiding care for the welfare of Moses. Not just is Moses capable of leading these people, but is he doing okay? Is he really doing okay? Maybe when you read your Bible, you come across stories of these great heroes of the faith, and they're inhuman to you. They've been so elevated or distilled down into a few of their best qualities that you forget that they're people. But they're people. And they do awful stuff to each other, and they do that because they run out of gas, and they get too tired, and they get overexcited, and they get depressed, and people attack them. And Moses, though I don't think he even knows it yet, is approaching a breaking point in his life. It's clearly uh, obvious to at least Jethro because of what he's about to say to him. But what I want you to understand is (laughs) he is inviting the oldest, the wisest, the, the biggest names in Israel to come and eat with him, and not only to eat with him, but to be his honored guests, and they accept that invitation. That means there is something about this man's worship that supersedes any qualification he either does or does not have. Verse 12 tells you this, okay? If I can read it for you again quickly, I want you to just catch this detail. It's important. Jethro, Moses' father-in-law, brought a burnt offering and sacrifices to God. Aaron came with all the elders of Israel to eat bread with Moses' father-in-law. Where? Before God. Not like they got their plate and went to the buffet before God got his plate and went to the buffet. Like in his presence, in front of him. Not just in a room in a temple with a carved idol to him, he was with them. The man, Jethro, has a feast, and at this feast, even God comes. Because it's about God. It's honoring to him. It is theocentric, you might say. It's it's centered on who God is. Jethro demonstrates in this that he is a man of great humility. When he speaks, he will show us that he is serious about worship. And in his advice, he will demonstrate to us that he knows Yahweh personally even though I don't think he knew Yahweh's name before Moses told him just a couple of verses ago. As I've hinted at now a couple of times, Jethro is just about to step out in a very bold way. And I'm saying this to you now four or five times in a row because I want it to just jump off the page at you. I don't want you to just read this and lose it in translation. I want you to really try, if you can, to drill into what he is saying and who he is saying it to. He's going to give advice to God's chosen prophet. He's going to give advice to a man who has stood himself one chapter ago as a judge in a courtroom where Yahweh is on the stand. Very few people, if any, have ever been granted this much authority in human history. It's the reason that when Jesus is transfigured on the Mount of Transfiguration, that one of the two people that he sees is Moses. Moses is that big of a deal, and Jethro's about to tell him how to live his life. Jethro will do that successfully because he is humble, because he is reverent, and because he is profoundly spiritual. I want you to keep those categories in mind. I'm going to give them to you again in a minute, but just watch for that as we hear Jethro speak. Verse 13. The next day, as they finish the sacrifice, they have the feast, they've worshipped God. The next day, Moses sat to judge the people. And the people stood around Moses from morning until evening. The people is not ten people. The people is a million and a half people, just so we're all on the same page with each other. It's huge throngs of people. And what they're coming to him is not to hear whether they've sinned or not. They're coming to him to find out, like, if they're going to get paid back because somebody's tent peg went through the leg of their goat, and now they're out one goat leg. And they'd like to know if anybody's going to replace that goat or the goat's leg or pay them back. These are the kind of petty spats that they're bringing to Moses as their leader, and they're saying, you've got to decide. So he's got to hear evidence, he's got to hear testimony, these people are emotional, they're angry at each, other, at each other. Some of them have already retaliated out of anger, and now he's having to figure out who owes who what. And there's no law established, except probably there is, right? If we pull this out and put it into the true context that it fits, God has given these kinds of statutes. But even with clarity, 
even if you have the rule book in your hands, as Moses probably does at this point in his life, it is exhausting to sit with people who only argue all the time. It's like teaching kindergarten, except your kindergartners are like killing each other and stealing each other's stuff and not giving it back and taking away each other's children and each other's spouses. It's really gritty. And Moses does it alone. Jethro comes to him in verse 14. He sees all that he's doing for the people, trying to serve them, and he says, what is this that you are doing for the people? Which I think is rhetorical. I think he's kind of going, what's going on here? Why do you sit alone? And, and why are all the people standing around you all the way from morning until evening? And Moses answers him. He says, well, because they've come to me to inquire of God. Their hearts are right. They want to know the right thing to do. When they have a dispute, they come to me, and I decide between one person and another, and I make them know the statutes of God and his laws. Moses' father-in-law said to him, what you are doing is not good. Now, I don't want that to be lost on you. Have you ever told a pastor that the way that he does ministry is wrong? Can you imagine that? Would you even know where to start? Have you ever told a local church elder? Have you ever even told a Sunday school teacher or a volunteer at church, you're wrong for doing this? Why are you doing this this way? I know you're trying to serve these people. You're totally backwards. You can't do it anymore. It's not good. This is a wild, wild moment in the life of God's people. For Moses to be approached at the end of an incredibly grueling day of trying to pass out judgment in a fair way, trying to represent God to his people, and Jethro comes to him and says, this isn't working. You can't do it this way anymore. Moses is probably like, what gives? You just got here last night. Are you kidding me? At least give me a couple of days to watch, and then you can decide if you think that I'm really that out of line or not. Jethro goes on. He says in verse 18, you and the people with you. Now, this is not the whole of the people of Israel. In Hebrew, this communicates your family. So why is Jethro concerned? Because Zipporah has come back. She's been estranged. We don't know, estranged. We don't know why. Jethro is saying, you and the people close to you will certainly wear yourselves out. You can't do this. One of the men who shows up all over the Bible, Moses, who we think is totally infallible. You may even think he's not real because he seems so great at everything. And here he is, weak. He's moments away. I mean, maybe a matter of hours away from a mental breakdown, from spiritually walking away. There's something in Jethro that can sense that Moses is only getting thinner. He's not getting stronger. He's not becoming better and better equipped to lead God's people. He is spending more than he's getting back every day. He says at the end, you are not able to do it alone. Jethro just told Yahweh's prophet what to do. By definition, you're not Yahweh's prophet if anybody else gets to tell you what to do. So what is happening here? Well, this is where I want to highlight these three parts of Jethro's character because he is uniquely qualified to offer this kind of advice to God's man. First, Jethro is humble. The advice that he is giving to Moses is coming from a posture where it's appropriate. If anybody else were to give Moses this advice... Think of the people that we've read about the last couple of weeks. Joshua, the young warrior, or maybe her, or um, Aaron, the two guys who hold up Moses' arms at the end of chapter 17. If one of them were to come to Moses and say, hey, this isn't working so good, you need to do something different, it might possibly be a ploy to take power from Moses. You may not know this, but if I can give you some insight into ministry here, because I think that this is a chapter in the Bible about ministry— in pastor-led or pastor-ruled churches, and what I mean about that is like in churches that lack elders, who don't have equally functioning elders, it is 100% normal and even expected for church staff members to try to eventually depose the pastor and take his job. Do you know that? Youth ministers, 
executive pastors, next-gen pastors, usually not children's pastors necessarily. I don't know why. They're usually the good people on the team. But uh, teaching pastors, college pastors, these guys are almost always gunning to eventually either take the job of the lead pastor or build their own platform so they can be an equal. It's not everywhere. It's not all the time, but it's far from rare. And in this setting, in a ministry setting, typically when, when you want somebody else's job in ministry, you can't just go after them. You can't just take them down. There can't just be a smear campaign. You can't stand up at a business meeting and all of a sudden have a a majority of people vote them out. You have to wait. You have to bide your time until they make a mistake, until they fall, until they give you an opening. And then you sort of quietly surpass them in either perceived skill or perceived holiness. The people look around and go, well, we can't follow this person anymore. Who do we have left? I guess we'll just elevate this guy. And that guy might have had something to do with exposing the lead pastor or putting him in a position of weakness. Or I think of Absalom a little bit later in the Old Testament who stands at the gate of the city of David. And every day when people come in, he goes, you know, if I was the king, I would do things a little bit differently around here. And he does that for long enough that eventually the people go, well, then you should be the king. And they rebel and they overthrow David and Absalom. Absalom tries to hunt him down and kill him. It's in our humanity to want to take from the people who we admire so that we can become them, even if it means we have to devour them along the way. If you're in this position, eventually you bide your time, you demonstrate how capable or talented you are, you build a following within the church, and when the time comes, you step into that vacuum. And you better believe that this pressure is on Moses every day. What if somebody else were to hold the staff of judgment? Somebody a little bit younger. Somebody who never ran away from Egypt, who never betrayed his people, who never murdered an Egyptian man in his youth. Somebody with a cleaner track record, with a better speaking voice. I can tell you in 2021, that'd be a major factor for our boy Moses. Maybe people in the congregation don't like that Moses' wife isn't around or his kids don't come to church. What does that mean? They haven't been here frequently enough. Who does he think he is? He can't even take care of his own household. These are the kinds of little threads that get woven together and they build big movements and they overthrow men who've just been doing their best. Eventually, the head guy falls, somebody else seizes the power, the influence, the ministry, and it doesn't even have to be a big mistake. I mean, we're talking about, uh, I'll speak to the millennials in the room, something the equivalent of hitting a banana peel in Mario Kart. I mean, just a break long enough for you to spin and somebody else to pass you. It's competitive. And you probably know the business world works like that, but you may not know that a lot of churches do. I can say about this one, it doesn't, it hasn't yet at least. I can't see into the future, but part of having a team of elders is that we all then submit to each other and we have pastorship in each other. And you can't depose a team of men with one person typically, so that helps. We also make sure that we hire people who really love the role that they are in. But what I want you to understand here is this is not just an Old Testament moment that's specific to Moses. That's why I asked you if you could just try to pull it out of its immediate context. I don't want to ignore the context. Moses' context is that he's worn out. He's doing all the ministry by himself. He's doing all the work. He checks his email 24 hours a day. He never has his phone off. He can't step away from his ministry. And Jethro's like, if you don't stop, you're going to die. And if you die, all of this is going to suffer. And it doesn't have to be that way. You have a choice. Eventually, in Moses' case, his ministry grew to become too top-heavy. That's what Jethro's identifying. You are alone up there, and you do too much by yourself. Yes, he's highly respected, at least as long as the people aren't too hungry or too thirsty, as we've learned the last couple weeks, but he's also alone. He has all the honor because there's nobody to share it with, but that means he also has all the pressure. And I think if Jethro wasn't humble, then his advice might be rightly perceived as a trap for Moses, but Jethro is humble. And so uniquely, Jethro is positioned to give Moses the kind of advice that doesn't lead to Moses' downfall, but actually leads to his flourishing, to his growth. 
Jethro's humility makes him the only person Moses can really listen to. And you've got to believe that Aaron and her and Joshua, they've all seen Moses overextend himself, but it's the advice of an older man who would never want Moses' job, offered from a position of humility that has a chance to be effective. Jethro's not done. He goes on in verse 19. He says, now, obey my voice. Again, he's got some authority here. Do what I say. I will give you advice, and God will be with you. You shall represent the people before God. You will bring their cases to God, and you will warn them about the statutes and the laws. You will make them know the way in which they must walk and what they must do. He's not changing the recipe for Moses at all. He's just saying, you're doing the right thing. Like, you're going to keep doing the right thing. However, 21, you will look for able men from all the people, men who fear God, who are trustworthy, men who hate a bribe. You will place such men over the people as chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens, and let them judge the people at all times. Every great matter they will bring to you, but any small matter they will decide themselves. And so it will be easier for you, and they will bear the burden with you, not in spite of you, with you. If you do this, God will direct you. You will be able to endure, and all this people also will go to their place in peace. The second thing you need to notice about Jethro is that he is reverent. He's humble, but he's also reverent. He doesn't just position himself below people. He has a right view of who God is. He's worshipful in his attitude and his posture. He takes the worship of Yahweh really seriously. It's both his great joy and his highest honor to worship the Lord for what he's done. It's why it's his knee-jerk reaction as soon as he arrives at the camp in Rephidim. It's the first thing Jethro does after he hears Moses' testimony, and Jethro doesn't just lead by himself, he leads other people. The magnetism, I want you to notice that. That's how we know he's truly reverent. Because when a person's just faking it, you can tell and you don't want to worship with a person like that. But when somebody's honestly on their knees in God's presence, you go, I, gotta, I want to follow that person in. Wherever the door is that they found, I want to find that door, I want to get in there too. If you look back at verse 12, Jethro brought Yahweh a burnt offering. Again, this is not necessarily something Yahweh has established at the point of the end of Exodus 17. He hosts a meal for himself, Jethro, we can safely assume, has also brought along his family of Gentile God followers with him, Zipporah, and the leaders of Israel, the elders, who are now the new nation set apart from the other people of the earth by God. What I love about Jethro's worship is it not only honors Yahweh by nature of being worshipped, that's good, we should worship Yahweh, he wants it, he's always wanted it, it's good, but as he worships, he emulates the character of Yahweh in his worship. He doesn't just go and worship God in a closet somewhere. I'm not saying that's always wrong, but he doesn't isolate himself. He doesn't put himself in a position where he's hiding the opportunity from everybody else. He invites the Israelite world to collide with the Gentile world, which is the character of Yahweh, to bring people together, to unite them, for there to be people in heaven from all over the world. Jethro is yet another foreshadowing that though God is using the Israelite people, his mercy, his compassion, even his laws are not just for them. It foreshadows to us eventually the work that Jesus would do. And as we watch a Gentile man invite Israelite and Gentile people to a shared table in God's presence, we get a glimpse of eternity, we get a glimpse of the Passover, we get a glimpse of communion, to sit together at the table of God. This is all that Jethro is doing. But Jethro is not God's prophet. He was not chosen to lead Israel, though he comes across in this chapter as a fairly capable leader. He has no special revolutionary insight into the future, right? He's not telling Moses what's going to happen. But he is a man who knows that Yahweh is serious about holiness. He knows that Yahweh is serious about justice and that Yahweh wants to draw people together of all nations to, to eat, to dine, to sit in his presence. Excuse me. 
We see in his reverence for God that he doesn't just do what God says, he embodies God's character. And if I can make a differentiation here for you, a distinction that may be helpful, to use two New Testament categories, this is the only difference to not just do what God says, but to try to embody his character. It's the only difference between a Pharisee and a disciple. They both know the rules. Disciples know the rules because they want to be like their rabbi. Pharisees know the rules because they like to earn more tickets at the holy, heavenly Chuck E. Cheese or whatever, where they play the game and they score the points and they win the prizes. That's what they think it's about. The difference between a disciple and a Pharisee is a disciple actually grows to look like the one that they follow. And a Pharisee never does. A Pharisee becomes more themselves than they've ever been. They just do it in a system that scores them religious points. Jethro's worship of God is ideal because it propagates God's rule on the earth. It's not lip service. It's life-giving to the people who participate. This is why in verse 19, he says to Moses, God be with you. This is not an empty platitude or a greeting you would give somebody on the road. You and I do this all the time. We say, how's it going? And then we go, good, when really it's horrible. It's never been worse. But good is what you say when somebody asks you that, right? Not necessarily. Jethro's a little more honest than that. Uh, Some of us pray, right, before we eat without even thinking about it, or we don't even really participate. We just close our eyes till whoever's talking is done so we can eat. We get upset if they go too long. This is not Jethro's experience. When Jethro says, may God be with you, that is the highest um, blessing that he can offer to a person. That's like ideal human living to him. If God is with Moses, then Moses is fine. He's got what he needs. Everything else will work out. God be with you is prophetic in some way because Jethro's words to Moses in Hebrew are really, really close to the name Emmanuel. Emmanuel is made up of three words, okay? Manu meaning with, im, us, el is God's name. God can either be Yah or El in Hebrew. So if you've ever wondered why all of the prophets' names end the same in the Old Testament, Jeremiah, Isaiah, because they have God's name at the end, or Ezekiel, El is God's name as well. Anyway, that doesn't probably matter to you, but I think it's cool. Um, In this instance, he's saying to Moses, probably to the tune of 3,500 to to 3,000 years before Jesus is born, he's saying, Emmanuel, may he be with you. May he dwell with you, close by. May you know him. It's always been God's objective. This isn't new when Jesus arrives. It's what God has been doing, and it's the well-wishing of one of his prophets named Jethro. He says, God will direct you. He says this to Moses before he gives Moses any of his practical advice. He says it to Moses before he tells Moses what practical good will come out of following that advice. He's saying to Moses on the front end, I want you to hear me. If you will allow me to play a role in your future, I think God will go with you. I think your faithfulness is on the line. I think your intimacy with him is on the line. And this demonstrates to us his reverence. He always has God in mind. He always has God, at least in the periphery of his view, and all he wants is for people who encounter him to encounter God personally. Finally, Jethro is profoundly spiritual. He's reverent, but that reverence is not disconnected from his daily life or the way that he thinks. The most practical advice Jethro can give is itself spiritual Advice, And I think there's a lesson for you and I in Jethro's spirituality. His faith in Yahweh is only as meaningful as it is practical. And I don't mean pragmatic. His advice clearly goes against Moses' instincts. It's somewhat counterintuitive. I mean practical. I mean that it can be practiced. This presence of God that Jethro is alluding to can be practiced by Moses based on the orientation of his heart and the way that he lives his life. What does Jethro expect will happen if Moses is willing to exercise a little humility and delegate some of his non-essential responsibilities to other leaders in Israel? He says in verse 23, if you do this, then God will direct you. 
And you will be able to endure. You won't wear out. You won't break in half. You won't have a mental breakdown. And all of these people will also go to their place in peace. Those are spiritual realities. God will direct you is a spiritual reality. Not just you will know what God thinks about some things, but he will steer your ship. You will go specifically moment to moment where he wants you to go if you will listen to me. You will endure. All of life wants to rip you apart, to tear you to shreds. These people are ready to kill you at a moment's notice. One of them, their stomach rumbles, and everybody looks at Moses' tent and goes, we got to get him. We're too hungry. we got to kill him. And then finally, think of these people. These are hard people to love, these people that have gone after Moses again and again. And Jethro says a spiritual reality will become true for them based on your leadership, Moses. They will have shalom, peace, inner peace, serenity. It's possible. Moses is thinking, these people can be at peace? No, not a chance. And Jethro's like, well, maybe because that's how you've been leading them, so let's make some changes and lower the stakes a little bit. And serenity is possible for God's people. Either Moses will take Jethro's advice or he will not last. That is what is on the line from Jethro's perspective. He will break, he will tear, he'll not be of use anymore. And when Jethro approaches Moses, in my opinion, this is an Old Testament example of what the New Testament calls shepherding. Jethro is being Moses' pastor for just a minute. He's doing soul care here. He's telling him, you've got to take a second, man. I'm not saying you're doing anything wrong. I'm saying that the pace at which you are doing everything right is destroying you at the atomic level. It is, it is dissolving you into nothing. And you're going to run out of yourself eventually. And then there's not going to be anything left. But if you will do this, Moses, if I can care for your inner person, there's going to be ripple effects. It's going to start with you. God's going to direct you. And then you're going to see that your life will be different. And then you're going to see that the people's lives for whom you are responsible, you're obviously motivated to love them or you wouldn't be giving them every hour of your day, every waking moment. Their lives will change when you take a second and posture yourself appropriately. He doesn't get all the way into self-care, but he does a little bit of soul care with Moses here because he can tell that Moses is burning the candle at both ends and he's going to wear himself out. What's at stake here is the wholeness of the people, the wellness of the people. The best translation of shalom is for something to be sound or as modern Christianese would say, solid, right? This is a really solid dude. This is a solid song. I found a really solid church. What we mean is sound, like you knock on it and it's not hollow and rotten. That's what shalom is about, that you are internally non-anxious, that you are externally able to help other people, that there is a strength to your life. How is this possible for Moses? Well, he comes to understand from Jethro's advice that delegating well by itself, it's not going to solve the problems and disputes of Israel. Maybe Moses would have reached that conclusion on his own. Some of the people who are supposedly supposed to receive shalom from God, it's not because Moses' new leadership style means they're all going to get a yes all the time. Some of these people for whom Jethro is promising peace are going to receive that peace by way of being told no. Irrevocably, irrefutably, non-negotiably, no. You are wrong and this is why. That's what these new leaders are going to have to hand out is the word no. And I'm sure Moses has done a little bit of that, but probably in this massive crowd, there's people who come every day and they just stand and watch and wait. And they make judgment calls in their own life based on how Moses leads other people. But they never make that initial personal encounter with God that they need. And we do that too. We evaluate our spiritual life based on other people's spiritual life, not God's definition of our spirituality. And we suffer for that. We suffer because it's like trying to wear somebody else's clothes. Once in a while, a shirt or pants might fit a little bit, but most of the time it's awkward. We can't wear our spiritual clothing that way either. 
Jethro is profoundly spiritual because he understands that for these people to receive an honest, humble no, grounded in the character of Yahweh, is the path toward inner peace. And so I would ask you, do you know that? Have you had that experience before where you've stuck around a church long enough to learn that lesson? Have you stayed at any church in your life long enough to be told no and then stayed after that no? Or do you go somewhere else where people like you and need you and want you bad enough that they never say no to you? Because I would argue that that's probably to your detriment if that's the case. Jethro is not naive. Don't misinterpret his spirituality as foolish optimism. It's not immature emotional grandstanding. He is not Moses' hype man. He cares. He wants Moses to find healing. And in this chapter, he is Moses' pastor. And after he's traveled all this way to hear how Moses has been, what God has done, to help Moses begin to connect the dots between Moses' knowledge of God and his experience of God with that advice given, Jethro is done. He has accomplished his purpose. He drops off his daughter-in-law and grandsons, and he leaves. And now we find out, is Moses wise? Will he listen to this advice? Or will he continue to lead on his own? Verse 24. So Moses listened to the voice of his father-in-law. He did all that Jethro had said to him. Moses chose able men out of all Israel and made them heads over the people, chiefs of thousands, of hundreds, of fifties, and of tens. And they judged the people at all times. Any hard case they brought to Moses, but any small matter they decided themselves. Then Moses allowed his father-in-law to depart, and Jethro went away to his own country. So Moses listened. He had humility. Or maybe he was just tired and broken enough that he didn't have another option. But I think he had humility. I think he made a choice. He made major changes to his daily rhythms in order to operate at a sustainable pace. He decentralized his own power. He delegated authority out to able men. Don't miss that. Not just anybody who wanted to help. Men who were qualified. In some ways, these men biblically are the precursor of the office of elder in the New Testament church. There is no church in the Old Testament yet. But these guys are helping in the way that elders help. And because of this, Moses lasts, he lives, he keeps going for much, much longer. He makes it to the point where he almost arrives in the promised land, and physically he's capable of getting there, but God tells him, no, you can't do it, because of an encounter that they have in the book of Deuteronomy. Jethro's legacy is that Moses doesn't have a heart attack and die at Rephidim from lack of sleep and high blood pressure. Moses is allowed to be a human being in this story. And though this passage doesn't state it explicitly, Moses' wife and sons stay with him when Jethro leaves. So something about his lack of margin has changed. Something about his ability to have people close to him and care for them has improved based on Jethro's advice. The very last thing that I want you to notice about Jethro is that he knows when to go away. With his challenging words delivered to Moses with humility and in reverence to God with profoundly spiritual effects, he goes home. And he will show back up again later in the story of Israel, but for now his job is done and he can follow God to whatever his next assignment is. So briefly, I have two quick takeaways for you. This will be your homework for the week to process these ideas. Two questions. One, are the voices in your life similar in any way to Jethro's voice? Are the people around you humble? Do you even know how to know that? Have you ever prayed to God about who your friends are, who's close? Should you be influencing them? Should they be influencing you? I'm not saying you need to make a change based on my advice. You need to ask God what he thinks. Are they reverent? Do the people around you really care about God at all? Do they give a rip? Or is it just a game you play or is it a game you all play together and you all really kind of know that underneath the surface you maybe don't really agree with it or it doesn't work that well for you, but as long as you can keep God kind of at arm's length, then you don't have to change that much and you can all just kind of stay the same and use Christian words. 
And are the people around you, and this is the hardest one, because I bet the answer is no, and I don't mean that in a mean way, but this is just part of us living where we live in the timeline that we live in. Are the people around you profoundly spiritual? I bet they're not. I bet they're profoundly practical. I bet they're very rooted in what they can measure and feel and understand, and I bet that those things tend to be the coal in their engine that drives their train. And we have an opportunity to be different. Because people who are, are not part of God's church, they don't have a choice, but we do have a choice. We have an opportunity to pick a different fuel that goes into our engine. And if you're like me, much of your Christian life for a very long time has been very unspiritual. It's been very practical, pragmatic, logical, informational, and it has had very little to do with any kind of real transformation or the power of God's spirit at all. Question two, are you shepherding the people around you? In other words, is your influence on others humble, reverent, and profoundly spiritual or not. You can't white-knuckle your way into this, but you just heard a very wise man give some very practical advice about creating margin in your life, slowing your pace, giving power away, delegating to other people. Those are physical actions, but they're connected to the way that your spirit functions. And if you don't give yourself room to know God, you won't. Very few people in life have a lightning bolt experience. Maybe you're one of them, but in a room this size, we might have one. So the rest of us who are not that guy or girl who's been chosen by God to have this out-of-body experience, we need to make some changes probably to our pacing, to our rhythms, to our priorities so that we ourselves can become humble. Are you humble enough to admit when you're out of gas? Have you, have you taken a nap in the last two years? I don't know if you've even felt this. I have felt it profoundly, and my life hasn't even changed that much. But through COVID, we have totally lost our differentiation between work and home. It's gone. I don't even know if we'll ever get it back again. Like, we just are always available. We're always, we can jump on a Zoom call with somebody four time zones away. It's, that happens in Alaska way more, I think, than other people. Yeah, I can get up early. Yeah, I can stay up late. Yeah, I can hop on and take care of that now. I can, I'll, I'll update the website. I can make that meeting. I'll send out that report. And we've lost our ability to say no to anybody who has a demand for us at all. And so our internal pace is just flying. When we hear Jethro speak to Moses, he promises Moses that one of the fruits of Moses' good and right slowing down is that the people will have shalom. That means when they go to bed tonight, they won't have to fight anxiety for six hours until they fall asleep. Some of us can't imagine that. Your head hitting the pillow and being gone, out, asleep, because the world is right, because God is on his throne, because you experienced him today and you know that you'll wake up and experience him tomorrow. These are not things I'm asking you to manufacture. I'm saying to you, if you cannot imagine these things as a reality, the little bit of control you have over your life is your responsibility, and there is probably some evaluating to be done of your inner pacing. If even Moses needed to pull the emergency brake once in a while, you better believe you're going to, and probably more than once in your life. So learn. <laughs> Don't do what Moses didn't do. Don't reach a point where you're so worn thin that you're no good to anybody. Heed the advice of a wise man. Jethro is a good example, but he's not our ultimate model. The three things that he represents, reverence and profound spirituality and humility, we see glimpses of them in Jethro. This is a one-chapter encounter. It's probably three or four days long in, in the grand scheme of things. But Jesus embodies these things perfectly. So if you're struggling with me asking you to follow a man who died in the desert several thousand years ago, that's not what I'm saying. I'm trying to get you to grasp some truth. I'm telling you to follow Jesus. Jesus who is humble, Jesus who is reverent, Jesus who is profoundly spiritual and who is never in a hurry. People die before he gets where he's going to heal them sometimes because he's not in a hurry. But because he has control of all things, he can handle even that. So there is a lesson for us 
in his life. May we learn to discern wisdom from foolishness. May we become people who are wise and careful. May we welcome a wise and careful no when we receive it. And may we become more like Jethro because we have become more like Jesus. Humble, reverent, profoundly spiritual. I want to pray that for you. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, for your example, for the opportunity to uh, become different people than we are, to change. The great challenge to me in preaching a scripture that is so profoundly practical is the threat, God, of accidentally casting a net of do better over these people. So I just ask that you would fix that and clean that up if that's what I did today. That's not my intention, Lord. I hope we can see in ourselves a deficit. I think that's necessary. I hope maybe we can take a step past that immaturity to identify the way that we've reacted to that deficit. How have we tried to overcompensate? How have we overextended? Where are we doing too much? And then, God, I hope we'll bring that problem to you because I believe you'll solve it. I think it's easy for you to do, and you'd like to. So for the men and the women in this room today, God, would you call us to yourself personally? Would you remind us that Christianity is profoundly spiritual, that it builds humility into our spirit, our inner person? We lower the priority of ourself because we can afford to, because you uphold us. God, may we be reverent not in a false, fake, weird way, God. May we be deeply aware of your presence around us and may we be eager to say thank you. We love you, God, and we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.